Jim McRitchie, and this is the Corporate Accountability Forum, where we discuss issues and possible solutions. So this is Jim McRitchie, and uh, this is a new platform. Uh, Eric Weinstein has been helping me put this together. Our uh, first guest in a series of uh, special guests is Brandon Reese this morning. And uh, Brandon has been a long time at the AFL-CIO. I used to see, when we used to go to conferences physically, I used to see Brandon at uh, conference. This time of year, I'd probably see him down in San Diego at the Corporate Directors Forum, where Brandon would be there talking about uh, hot topics. And uh, so I think uh, he'll probably talk about hot topics for our group, um, what's what went on last year? What does he expect this year with regard to shareholder proposal and shareholder activism? And then also maybe touching on things that are going on in Washington, since you're in Washington and you've got kind of a good place to see what's going on and interact with those folks. So why don't I hand it over to Brandon and We'll see where we go from there. I, I'd like to think of this as just kind of a, we're sitting around, uh, you know, having lunch and uh, for you on the East Coast, breakfast for us on the West Coast, and uh, maybe we'll just go to Brandon. Thanks, Jim, and thanks, thanks for having me. Um, as as you you alluded to, um, you know, I've been uh, with the AFLCI, I'm the Deputy Director, Corporations Capital Markets for the AFLCO for uh, over. Uh, two decades now, um, and I know what you're all thinking. Uh, geez, he must have started when he was in first grade, and uh, I can reassure you that yes, that's absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had early interest in corporate governance issues, and so, uh, um, but um, first, I, I really want to commend uh, you, Jim, uh, for for your work on uh, uh, shareholder activism, as well as for standing up to the SEC's misguided rule changes uh, to the shareholder proposal rule, Rule 14A8, uh, under President Trump. Um, the lawsuit that you and ICCR and as you so have filed um, is really uh, going to help protect the rights of shareholders to hold companies accountable. Uh, and of course, as many of you know, uh, today's best practices in corporate governance arose in, in large part from uh, the private ordering process of shareholder proposals. And uh, our, our country has a long history of uh, individual shareholder advocacy. Uh, the Gilbert brothers, of course, were the, the first shareholder proponents after World War II. Uh, they established many best practices, such as auditor ratif ratification votes as a universal practice. Um, they were also ahead of their times in advocating for gender diversity on boards. And Jim, your, your work as a shareholder advocate really carries on that tradition. So thank you. Um, first, a little bit about the, the AFL-CIO. The AFL-CIO is America's labor federation of 56 trade unions with 12.5 million dollars, 12.5 million members. Uh, we represent workers from every walk of life. Uh, and our newest affiliate, the Women's National Soccer Team Players Association, their members today just won a historic $24 million equal pay settlement uh, that you may have seen in the papers uh, against the U.S. Soccer Federation. Um, that lawsuit was filed after the women's team twice won the World Cup, uh, but the men's team 
failed to qualify in 2019. <laughs> so uh, it's a great day for for equal pay, uh, and uh, and so we our hats are off to them today. Um, America's workers are major shareholders in publicly traded companies through our retirement savings. Uh, there's over $15 trillion in retirement plan assets in the United States, and that's divided between single employer, corporate sponsored plans, public employee uh, pension plans, and Taft-Hartley or multi-employer pension plans. And union members participate in all three types of these plans uh, and are disproportionately represented by, because by the fact that um, A, of course, uh, many decades ago, far greater uh, numbers of U.S. workers were in labor unions, and B, negotiating retirement security and ensuring that union members uh, have a, se a secure pension plan has always been one of the highest priorities for labor unions in this country. We view the retirement plan assets uh, uh, as the deferred wages of working people. Uh, and our capital stewardship program, which I help administer, is designed to enhance the retirement security of working people by aligning the investment of those funds with the long-term horizon of pension plans, which is uh, at least as long as the life expectancy of plan participants and beneficiaries, and, and potentially an, an infinite uh, time horizon uh, as new plan participants uh, come into to a retirement plan. To that end, we strongly believe that working people deserve a voice in the capital markets and in the corporations that we invest in. We strongly believe that pension plans should act as responsible investors and not simply as passive shareholders. Working people deserve a voice in the corporate governance of today's companies. And it's our view that uh, shareholders do the best over the long term when all stakeholders are taken into consideration. And for us in the labor movement, this isn't an academic question between uh, the debate between shareholder uh, primacy and stakeholder capitalism. It's a very real question about whether working people will be able to retire in dignity after a lifetime of work. And we can't allow the nearsighted vision or short-termism of corporate CEOs or Wall Street money managers to compromise our ability uh, to ensure that companies are investing for the long-term and for sustainable growth. Uh, that's really the lesson of the, uh, the Enron era corporate malfeasance. Uh, behind me on the wall is a stock price graph that I keep in my office of Enron uh, that was a exhibit in the shareholder lawsuit after the company's bankruptcy. Of course, in that bankruptcy, thousands of Enron employees lost their retirement savings uh, uh, when, they, when their 401k plan was frozen. Uh, and had been stuffed with company stock. Uh, they also lost their livelihoods, their jobs, their communities where they spent every, the best eight hours of every workday. Uh, and one of those workers uh, was the father of my boss, AFL-CIO President Liz Schuler. Uh, her father was an IBW lineman at Port Portland General Electric that had been recently acquired by Enron. Uh, and he too lost his 401k savings in the, in the bankruptcy. Uh, every day I look at that stock price and I'm graph and I'm reminded of uh, our sacred duty to safeguard the retirement savings of working people. Um, I think Judge Cardozo uh, famously said it uh, almost 100 years ago that a trustee is someone who's 
uh, is something that is stricter than the morals of the marketplace and not honesty alone, but the, a punctilio of honor most sensitive is the standard for behavior. So that's the, what guides us uh, in our capital stewardship program, how we approach corporate governance issues. Uh, and I look forward to the conversation today. I know there's a lot of interesting issues in corporate governance uh, that we can talk about and uh, look forward to the conversation. Well, I'm gonna start with a, one question is, uh, executive pay watch. That seems to be one of the more popular things that the AFL CIO has done over the years. Uh, what kind of feedback are you getting on that? Yes, yeah, so uh, we launched uh, executive pay watch back in 1997. Uh, when I first started with the AFL-CIO in first grade. Uh, and uh, um, it uh, continues to be you know, one of the most visited uh, portions of the AFL-CIO's website. The goal really was to uh, uh, help the public and help investors and help working people better understand the um, role of, of runaway CEO pay and its impact on economic inequality in our economy. Uh, as well as the risks that it posed for shareholders uh, of companies, including our retirement savings. So in 2020, and we update the numbers uh, each, each uh, spring, so as the proxy season unfolds uh, and the new data comes out, we'll be updating the numbers for 2021. But as of 2020, the average CEO of an S&P 500 company uh, received $15.5 million in total compensation. It's a life-changing amount of compensation uh, for one person, uh, and it's equal to 299 times the average or median workers pay in the S&P 500. Um, we are worried about C runaway CEO pay, uh, not just because of its uh, impact on, on economic inequality, uh, but because uh, we fear that it promotes uh, short-term decision-making by corporate CEOs. Uh, the siren song of a life-changing pay package can cloud the even the, the you know the the judgment of even the most uh, um, uh, you know uh, loyal and long-term thinking CEO uh, when when uh, you can have a choice making the choice between uh, investing in the company's operations uh, training for its workforce uh, research and development versus say stock buybacks that will temporarily boost the company's stock price uh, and also um, help the company meet its earnings per share metrics, uh, which uh, are often a performance metric in CEO pay. So um, for those reasons, CEO pay reform has always been high on the labor movement's pension plans agenda for corporate governance. Uh, we've been the advocates for uh, important reforms like limits on golden parachutes, um, for reforming the use of equity compensation, uh, including stockholding requirements uh, for executives, um, specific performance standards, uh, and, and the like. So, um, yes, yeah, so uh, CEO pay is always, always an important and hot topic, and it's material not just because of the dollar amounts involved, uh, but because of its impact on executive decision making. Uh, and we're still grappling with the, how the best, the best way to do it, right? And one of, one of my pet peeves in corporate governance is that too many institutional investors um, see total shareholder return as sort of a, a justification for high, high CEO pay. Uh, but it, we have to remember that 
uh, total shareholder return is not tied to executives' individual performance as the CEO of the company. Uh, there are many external factors that drive stock price performance. Uh, are we in a bear market, bull market? Uh, is the sector in favor, out of favor? Um, and what we should really be thinking about uh, when voting on say on pay is how can we best align the executive's individual uh, performance goals to the, to the uh, key metrics that create value for the company, its shareholders, and, and its employees. Uh, and uh, I don't think we're there yet. It is a, a topic that um, was addressed by the Dodd-Frank Act, uh, uh, that, which has not been addressed yet. Uh, Section 956A uh, requires the SEC to disclose pay for performance, uh, required to, requires the SEC to issue new regulations to have companies disclose pay for performance. Uh, they've just reissued that release for comment uh, by investors, uh, and they've enhanced it. They've enhanced it to uh, ask companies to identify the key performance metrics uh, that are actually being used to determine CEO pay. Uh, and it's my hope that this will lead to, to more thoughtful um, say on pay voting and ultimately uh, more thoughtful um, uh, design of executive compensation plans by boards of directors. Yeah, it seems like even thoughtful voters um, aren't really addressing the annual ratcheting up of CEO pay. I mean, it seems, you know, in my you know, outsider's view of it, it seems like, <clears throat> okay, every year they do it an annual survey, their compensation consultants survey, okay, what are their peers getting or what are, what are people getting paid? And then uh, the board says, okay, well, our CEO is, of course, above average because otherwise we'd fire them, you know. <laughs> they must be performing above average because they're our CEO. So, uh, and oftentimes they put that at the 75th percentile level. So if you're measuring every year what people got paid and then you're putting yourself at the 75th percentile level or even just above average, then the next year you come back and you do your salary survey again. Well, salaries, one, you know, or not salary, pay, total pay packages. Then the pay package goes up. And I like I, I'm thinking about running for the CalPERS board. So I've talked to people at CalPERS uh, a few days ago, asking them, well, what are you doing to stop the ratcheting up? And uh, you know, they're they're looking at paper for for performance, and I think that some of their metrics get to that kind of abuse, but they're not really, I don't know, is anyone doing, I mean, I know there are some funds that say, okay, if they get paid, you know, 150 times more than the average employee were voting against them in the compensation package. But do you know other approaches that people are taking to try to? Well, what you're identifying is, you know, one of the, um, key problems in, in corporate governance that, um, you know, when a board of directors is setting executive compensation, what the, comp the compensation committee really has two tasks. One is to identify the performance metrics uh, that will, uh, that will incentivize, you know, purport to incentivize the executive to focus on particular uh, uh, um, metrics to achieve, to receive the compensation. So that's part of the job. But the other part of the job is then to assign a magnitude or amount, dollar amount of compensation that would then be awarded to the executive. Uh, and that's where shareholders have really dropped the ball. 
Uh, I've been in too many conferences, too many meetings where, you know, a proxy voter from some institutional investors says, I care only about pay for performance and I don't care at all about the magnitude uh, or quantum of pay. And that's problematic. And it's problematic because high CEO pay in itself is a risk factor. Um, first of all, you know, I believe we're on a backward bending labor supply curve for CEO talent. The more you pay them, the fewer years they're going to work. Uh, um, secondly, uh, as I s- spoke to before, high CEO pay uh, can lead to executives taking uh, short-term decisions uh, that are not in the best long-term interest of the company, right? If I, if I can goose the stock price this quarter, I'll s- be able to cash out my stock options. Uh, and the costs of that decision will only be reaped by shareholders over the long term, long after I've retired. Um, so, um, and then the, the last risk factor is the corrosive effect on runaway CEO pay on organizational performance and collaboration. I don't care if you're the CEO, you're, you're the na- one of the next named five executive officers, the CFO of the company or if you're a rank and file employee, the median employee of the organization. When you see the CEO receiving the lion's share of compensation, it sends a dispiriting message that uh, all value is created by the CEO uh, and uh, the rest of you are mere factors of production. Uh, Whereas a company in which the CEO's pay philosophy is internally aligned with the company's overall compensation philosophy, and in line you know, with the, uh, the appropriate amount of compensation, uh, that fosters collaboration, that fosters teamwork. Uh, it encourages employees to go the extra mile for their employer because they know that they're all in it together. And that's what's missing uh, from today's uh, calculations regarding uh, say on pay votes. Uh, Dodd-Frank again attempted to address this issue uh, it by requiring the disclosure of uh, CEO to median employee pay of the organization uh, to give investors a simple yardstick. Now that rule, you know, I think um, actually did, was even more beneficial in, in cracking the window on human capital management disclosure. Uh, before we had the pay ratio disclosure, we had no idea how much companies were paying their workforces. Uh, you know, at, this is, of course, at the same time that many companies are saying that um, their workforces are their greatest asset, right? Uh, and um, uh, but but no information is being provided about the most important metric for that workforce, which is their compensation. Are we a high road employer creating good jobs uh, with high productivity workforce, uh, or are we a low road employer which is uh, suffers from high turnover? Uh, and is really just paying the um, a market clearing wage uh, to um, uh, you know to uh, keep costs down and and boost the share price over the short term. So uh, so those are the issues that I, I see ahead of us, uh, and I believe um, we st- we're still working on um, you know with the institutional investor community. Well, two things come to mind there. One is EEO uh, EEO one reports. At one point, I thought they were supposed to report pay along with the and i'm not sure if you know what happened but in in my mind what happened was uh under obama the rules that were proposed was supposed to be okay they're reporting the eeo one who's in that category uh to the department of labor and and then people are now asking uh through 
um, shareholder proposals companies to report that information. But uh, they were supposed to, I think, start reporting pay. And I think maybe that went away when Trump came into office. He was able to squelch that. I'm not sure. But another... hey, that, that, that's my recollection as well, that um, the, the, the DOL was collecting the information. It was not publicly available to the investors of the company. Uh-huh. And uh, again, because of the shareholder proposal rule and investor advocacy, uh, companies are now voluntarily providing that information and supplemental reporting to investors uh, of their workforce's diversity. And that's, a, you know, an unequivocally positive development. Right. Um, and so, um, so, but, but as you, as you mentioned, investors are still looking for uh, information about the compensation and how it's broken right. down, not just the EEO data, which is currently uh uh, disclosed along, uh, um, you know, along job classification, right? Are you a managerial employee? Are you a professional employee? Uh, are you a production line employee? I see Christian's got his hand up. I don't know if you want to recognize. Uh, sure. uh, yeah, thanks. This is a fascinating topic. And I, uh, Brandon or Jim, uh, I looked at these data, I don't know, a year ago. And I remember back in the 70s, this this the ratio is more like 40 times it was it was that different that recent ago i mean to me the 70s is recent it's in my lifetime <laughs> um but i also i worked at sanford bernstein in the 90s and we did a big deep dive research into this topic uh, on a, you know our, our strategist michael goldstein and i remember his theory was that this the expansion of executive pay had a lot to do with using stock and stock options in addition to cash and it was also a way to shift the cost of employ- of that level of employee onto you know diluting the shareholder base and he he even matched share buybacks to the expansion of the shareholder of shares by companies needing to you know buy back the shares from the stock options that get granted and, and then executed so to what degree is the expansion of that multiple due to using stock and stock options as pay as a prop instead of cash sure. I assume it has something to do with it, just as a mechanism. Yeah, I, I think you're you're absolutely right that um, you know many there were many investors um, who advocated for um, better aligning CEO pay with shareholder returns through things like stock options. Although part of the problem is that shareholders are not option holders, right? Stock options provide all the benefit of share price increases with none of the risk of share price declines. They encourage a shoot for the moon mentality. Uh, in in when executives are making decisions, um, and 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 you know all that's lost as well. If you crash the stock price, um, you uh, you're getting another tranche of stock options awarded to you the next year. You're going to make out like a bandit just to get the stock price back where it is. And so uh, there's also academic research that stock option compensation is correlated with greater share price volatility. Well, as an investor, share price volatility is a measure of risk, all things being equal. So why are we paying executives uh, with a, uh, a, a form of compensation that's actually more valuable uh, the more share price volatility there is? It's right there in the Black-Scholes option pricing model. <laughs> the higher volatility, the more likely the options are going to be in the money, even if, uh, even if the, the long-term returns are, uh, are nil. Um, and I think that the, your point goes to uh, the the issue I was raising before about um, many institutional investors just seeing total shareholder returns as uh, 
you know, a moral justification for high CEO pay, right? And uh, if we just, just um, you know, we, we can't complain if, uh, um, you know, high CEO pay, um, uh, um, you know, is, is aligned. But the problem is, you know, it takes many decades for a CEO's decision uh, to, about, you know, whether to invest in the company today play out over the long term. Um, and so it's, you know, it really is my belief that, um, you know, we're, we're it, again, high CEO pay is a risk factor uh, that leads to nearsightedness by, by corporate CEOs uh, who, you know, many will do want to invest for the long term and, and care passionately about the companies that they run. Uh, but that uh, it's, you know, it's hard, it's hard to set aside the fact that you have this life changing payout. Um, and just, know, just to clarify, I mean, we were very much against using stock options and stock as executive pay. And Mike made the point, which was interesting, that it might be appropriate for a startup that has no cash. It's so like sweat equity, but it's not appropriate for, you know, an S&P 500 well-established 50-year-old company or like a JP Morgan or something like that, because it's a, you know, you have the cash to pay your employees. So. Right. Well, and yeah, it also you're raising the, the issue of um, stock option expensing in that debate as well, right? That exactly uh, companies like, wanted to were were essentially hiding from investors the cost of their saving cost part of their CEO compensation as well as compensation for for the rest of the workforce by not not expensing stock options, and that that's something we 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 fought for um, and uh, you know we're able to achieve again in part through the submission of shareholder proposals. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, I think that, um, that, uh, you know, today's investors, you know, it's worth looking back at, you know, how do we get to where we are today? And, and, you know, what was the role of share owners, um, as advocates, uh, engaging with companies, uh, and educating the public around, around these issues. So, um, now we're, I think we're very much still looking to put the genie back in the bottle and on CEO pay. And it does have, you know, important impacts. You know, it, your comments reminded me of um, the business roundtables statement of the purpose of the corporation that was issued a, a couple of years ago and sort of uh, restating uh, their views on, um, uh, you know, what some have termed stakeholder capitalism, you know, others have derided as being uh, trying to turn back the clock to, to managerial capitalism, you know, that we had in the post-war area, uh, in which uh, which companies really CEOs really had discretion uh, um, in terms of managing the company, and no one was no one was watching them. Uh, but I don't believe we can turn back the clock, um, you know, uh, and we instead need to be thinking forward uh, about how um, you know how investors, how responsible investors in particular, including workers' pension plans, um, can best advocate for rules of the game that will provide for, you know, broad-based prosperity um, and, and long-term decision-making by corporate CEOs. So, uh, and CEO pays a critical part of that, right? That's what drives the decision-making. Um, and so, you know, for example, we're encouraged, uh, uh, this year we're encouraging a, a a uh, hotel company that had a low say on pay vote to uh, include um, customer satisfaction as a key performance metrics in their CEO pay. Uh, I don't know if you've, if many of you had opportunity to travel um, during COVID-19 uh, or, or um, but uh, you know, there have been some pretty dramatic changes in, in the hotel industry, um, you know, related to the fact that uh, many of these companies uh, laid off significant portions of their workforce 
or furloughed them during the COVID-19 recession uh, and, and now haven't brought them back. So uh, you can't get your, you can't get daily housekeeping, for example. Um, it's, uh, you know, I, I was uh, staying at a hotel with my family uh, over the summer and, um, uh, you know, their policy was, well, you know, due to COVID-19, we're not going to, we don't offer daily, daily housekeeping is, you know, as requested as opposed to uh, an opt-out thing as it historically has always been when you stayed at a hotel, you always, you know, put the do not disturb sign on your door. Uh, and, um, uh, and I had to plead with the, the hotel front desk days at, it took several days before I could get uh, housekeeping. Uh, meanwhile, my, my room with my, my two uh, teenage daughters, you know, was becoming like a Superstorm Sandy, <laughs> Superstorm Katrina, uh, uh, you know, Superdome type situation with trash piling up, dirty towels. Um, you know, it wasn't the experience I was accustomed to as a long, long patron of, uh, of, uh, of hotels. So anyway, um, we're, we're hopeful that we can align CEO pay to include things that actually are directly connected to value, directly connected to CEO decision-making. And that includes things like if you're a, if you're a hotel company, a hotel operating company, um, are you, uh, are you, is your pay aligned with, uh, customer satisfaction? So, Chris, I see you've got your hand up. Well, maybe just a remark to add to the hotel thing that for years we've been seeing those little cards, you know, if you don't want your towels and linens changed today for the care of the environment, you know, but underneath that was also the whole drive to try and reduce those sorts of labor costs. And, um, you know, as, as an organization, one of the things that, that we try to, I think you've articulated very well the, 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 the business case and, 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 and the risk case associated to it. Um, to the rampant executive compensation. Um, but there's you know, the, the kind of moral case that it also has driven so many of our members around this question. Um, you know, our, our founder, and you and I have talked about this before, Brandon, you know, our founder, Father Mike, um, one of the last uh, campaigns he was a part of before, before he died was trying to push um, 12 different retailers to increase the wages for their workers. At the end of the day, the SEC ruled that those could be omitted, um, but we've long advocated for raising the federal minimum wage, for seeking a living wage, um, and that there is the question of how high can the top go, but also what can we do to, you know, help especially those at the bottom. And um, you know, this year, a number of um, shareholders, including our members, have filed with a number of restaurants um, to, to seek um, better wages for those workers, you know, to kind of put the pressure from the other direction as well. But um, it, yeah, these, 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 these kinds of things um, are just such critical concerns for, for society. You know, in um, 2013, President Obama made, I pulled up the quote because I think it's so important, rising income inequality is the defining challenge of our time. And in that same year, Pope Francis said, how can it be that it is not a news item when an elderly homeless person dies of exposure, but it is news when the stock market loses two points? Um, that that the voices of faith-based shareholders want to stand alongside those of of of, of unions and and of organized workers in those respects to um, advance a more rational uh, form of compensation, not only at the top but across the board. Maybe I'll close it my remark at that point. Other than to say, you've probably also seen the news about ISS and Glass-Lewis's recommendations regarding um, Apple's 
uh, upcoming vote on 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 that one. I don't know if you want to make any comments about that. Well, I think I think your uh, point is well said, and of course, um, you know the the charitable proposal process has been uh, uh, you know is, is really really the 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 conscience of the corporation, right? And it's been part of our U.S. corporate governance fabric for so many decades. It's really what, uh, you know, the, the, the right of dissent. And what we saw um, under the Trump administration was an effort to silence that dissent, right? That there was both reforms proposed to the shareholder proposal rule to keep folks like Jim McRitchie, as well as union members from being able to file shareholder proposals. Uh, and there was also an effort to keep our pension plans from voting. Uh, on, uh, you know, against management. One of the safe harbors that the Department of Labor proposed was that, well, you could, you could always vote with corporate management. <laughs> Management's always right. And, you know, that is, that is the perspective that corporate CEOs have. Of course, we're always right. But all CEOs can't be always right all the time. Uh, and we would be breaching our fiduciary duty to uh, pension plan participants if we always voted with corporate management. Um, and that's been the understanding, you know, uh, um, you know, going back decades since the, uh, since the uh, Employee Retirement Income Security Act was passed in 1974. So, um, uh, you know, I think it's, uh, I think it's, it, it is, uh, you know, it's, it's still, still an evolving landscape, um, you know, and, you uh, um, the uh, the issue about uh, um, you know what what kind of jobs companies are creating an important component of that is is um, what type of turnover are they experiencing right um, I just received a a letter I can't let's see I'm not sure if I have it in front of me from the uh, Society of Human Resource Management saying you know is the Great Resignation um, you know, a, a problem for, for your organization. And, and according to them, it's unequivocally yes, that, that companies are struggling with workers uh, quitting their jobs uh, or not coming back to their jobs uh, after they've been furloughed during COVID-19, understandably, or seeking, uh, um, you know, more, more stable and more loyal employers uh, that uh, will, will seek to, you know, build a long-term relationship. Uh, and it really, it speaks to, um, the you know the the ability of companies to create value right so uh, back in 1975 uh, I think the average uh, uh, um, the intangibles on a company's uh, uh, balance sheet uh, were only 17 percent of of total assets today for the S and P 500 it's over 90 percent uh, of uh, of value is uh, our intangibles and where does that where do those intangibles come from. Well, they're created by the workforce in terms of goodwill, brand name, customer relationships, intellectual property. That all comes from the workforce. And, and the problem is that our, our disclosure rules and our accounting rules have not kept up uh, to this changing, changing economy. And those companies that succeed are, are those that, are, that partner with their, their employees, create good jobs, uh, and um, and are willing to invest in them and recognize the, the cost of high employee turnover uh, on on uh, on the company in terms of retraining costs, uh, in terms of um, in terms of uh, uh, lost um, firm specific human capital. Right. I mean, that's one issue that we, um, I think is underappreciated. Just how much a worker's knowledge about how their company does things and how to get things done. Uh, in their job, how important that is uh, that and, and is not necessarily transferable 
to uh, to another employer. Um, and um, you know, and and so um, it's my hope that you know we're, we're, investors will will uh, take the forthcoming human capital management uh, disclosure. Uh, information that uh, SEC Chair Gensler is currently working on, uh, and be able to have a, a much more, um, much more uh, high-level conversation uh, with uh, with companies, with boards of directors, um, so that we can um, we can start to you know to to build a an economy that works for all. One thing I'd like to see, and I should submit a comment, I guess, before the proposal comes out, which could be any time for human capital management. But since 2003, I think, uh, companies have had to report um, or have had to go to a vote for um, compensation, incentive compensation, which is mostly, I think, now not in the form of options, but in the form of restricted stock, probably. And so I've been talking to a bunch of different companies and it seems like the, I could be wrong, but I think most companies report restricted stock that goes to the named executives. They have to report that in the compensation table, I, I think. And then they report what goes to the board members, but uh, they don't, we don't see anything about what goes to employees below that executive level. So that's one of the proposals I have is, so last year I had <clears throat> proposals and I saw that uh, that AFL-CIO has a proposal at Activ Activision Blizzard that's similar to, uh, somewhat similar to what I had last year, although yours has a little different twist. Uh, what I had was kind of a Rooney Rule proposal okay, let's at least get a worker in the candidate pool. Whereas what I think you have at Activision Blizzard is, let's get a worker on the board. Is that is it a direct kind of thing like that? But so uh, that's one question. And then the other thing is, I'm, you know, what I've done is since I didn't get very far with those and not even the pension funds, public pension funds who have workers on the board of directors of the public pension. But I talked to those workers, they'd say, yeah, sure, we vote in favor of that. But then the people that do the actual voting, no, they vote against it. So uh, so what I've done this year is ask for, okay, tell us how you've distributed those shares below those incentive shares that we voted in favor of. Uh, where did those shares go? You know, at well level in the companies. A couple of issues there for you. Yeah, it's exactly. So, um, well, you raise a lot of issues. Um, uh, one, you know, last year the AFLCI we had filed a shareholder resolution at Activision uh, asking the company to adopt the Rooney Rule for its employee hiring, uh, which, uh, for those who may not know, is named after uh, the NFL football coach who. Um, uh, help to diversify uh, the NFLs uh, by proposing that whenever interviewing uh, candidates for head coaching positions, and it's since been expanded to include other other positions in the NFL, uh, that you would you would the the hiring entity would have to consider uh, qualified uh, uh, minority candidates. And so the idea here is that um, 
that to expand diversity, we need to make sure that the the pool of talent being considered uh, is diverse. And it, and it has been has started at the board level, right? So many companies have adopted that, uh, and many pension funds have voted in favor of that. Uh, and then um, uh, our goal was to expand it uh, through the workforce, which many companies and some industries, in fact, are taking a leadership and have, do- have done. Uh, Activision uh, had had has had adopted similar changes as well to its own hiring. Um, the proposal ultimately got excluded. Um, this year, we've come back with a new shareholder resolution, uh, which, um, at, and, and it is a little bit different than most shareholder proposals uh, seeking to include an employee representative on boards of directors. Um, one of the issues is, is how do you ensure that that employee representative uh, represents the the interests of the non-management workforce of the company. How to in order to get the benefits of, of dialogue and 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 co- uh, uh, cooperation between labor and management, you need to have a, a independent worker voice on the board. Uh, and it one of the challenges given the state of uh, union density here in the United States being at historic lows is how do you ensure that absent collective bargaining? Um, in in c- countries like Germany that have co-determination where half of the board seats for large companies are worker representatives, you have a strong uh, trade union tradition uh, and high levels of union density uh, in which uh, which workers can, can, can exercise that voice to identify those representatives. So our proposal is asking, that the company uh, nominate a worker elected candidate. So you and and we're not defining what process you know that would take place through, but that it should be by virtue of a democratic election, uh, and that's intended to uh, prevent um, uh, the employee being simply a you know crony of management, right, an insider uh, that is not adding a diverse perspective, the perspective of the company's rank and file workforce. So. Um, so yeah, that's the, that's a new wrinkle we've introduced at, at Activision this year. Uh, we anticipate that we'll go to a vote, um, notwithstanding the, the announced merger with uh, Microsoft. Um, and we do think it would be beneficial, particularly at a company like Activision that has uh, had such uh, uh, struggles uh, with uh, with diversity as well as you know allegations of uh, uh, sexual harassment, and other Me Too type problems that um, we think could be helped rectified in part by having employee representatives on the board. Great. Uh, uh, and you, I guess you also asked about uh, employee pay, employee uh, equity compensation as well, yeah, which was another yeah. whole another topic we could spend another hour on. Um, you know, we, uh, we at the AFLCO, you know, we, we believe employee uh, equity compensation um, you know, is appropriate. Uh, profit sharing is appropriate, uh, but only after workers' basic income needs, their retire- retirement uh, is well provided for, uh, and, um, and they have adequate health insurance. Uh, and too often in the United States, um, equity-based compensation is, is a substitute for that, that base pay, uh, not a complement to it. Um, and so that, that's exactly what happened at Enron, right? Enron workers uh, um, only had a 401k plan and it was stuffed to the gills with company stock uh, because that was the culture. That's what the workforce was being told that you know, their stock going to the moon, you're gonna be, uh, you're gonna be a millionaire uh, if you keep your 401k and company stock. 
and so, um, uh, and and another another point you're raising is you know the decline in broad-based equity compensation plans. Uh, again, part of that you know followed option expensing uh, that companies decided they didn't they didn't uh, 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 want to grant uh, you know equity compensation more broadly to the workforce um, if they had to account for it properly. Uh, and, um, and, you know, and, and, and to be realistic, I mean, uh, for example, uh, Walmart recently uh, announced that they were, uh, they were, uh, uh, I, I believe, eliminating or phasing out their, their uh, broad-based equity uh, plan for its workforce, for its rank-and-file workforce. Um, you know, as a, as, a, as a worker, you know, who has to worry about meeting, meeting their, their monthly rent, um, you know, I can't use my stock options to do that, right? I need, I need a, I need, I need fifteen dollars an hour as a minimum wage, uh, and so I think that once we achieve that, um, then you know, um, the idea of, of fostering collaboration and sharing of profits, you know, becomes a, uh, a real possibility. Another concern that I wrote down here is key votes survey. I'm not sure if you're still doing that anymore. I haven't seen it lately. Maybe you're still doing it, but one thing I, one way I used that was I looked at my own, so I used to work for the state of California for 30 years. And um, I looked at the options that we had available. You know, of course we have CalPERS for our retirement, but you also have 401k plans and other things. And, uh, I looked at how they were voting our shares, and I compared that to the key vote survey that the AFL-CIO put out. And basically, I saw that uh, the fund, that the S&P 500 fund that was made available to state employees, and that's where almost all the money went. There were some other options, but most of it went to that S&P 500. Um, they voted against everything that we worked for during the day. You know, they voted against the environment. They voted against education. They voted against, you know, women's rights. Uh, you know, basically everything that uh, state employees work for. Uh, you know, health and safety issues, other things. So, uh, I found it very helpful. Although it wasn't as helpful as I, you know, because even though I raised that as an issue. Uh, I still couldn't get the uh, governor's office to say, okay, well, let's change. They did get a slightly better S&P 500 as far as voting, but nowhere near what it should be. So, Brandon, where where is the AFL-CIO? Are you still doing that thing? Yes, if you visit invest.aflcio.org, uh, it'll take you just to the page that, uh, that has our AFL-CIO key vote survey. Um, we've been doing that since 1997 as well, in addition to our executive paywatch website, which the URL is www.paywatch.org, yeah. uh, that you, um, uh, and the, the AFL-CIO key vote survey is a tool for pension plan trustees to be able to, uh, evaluate and compare asset manager voting on, uh, on issues that we've identified as being key, key issues for the proxy season. So each right. year, we identify a series of 20 to 30 votes uh, and uh, we survey asset managers uh, and we collect mutual fund proxy voting data from form NPX filings with the SEC. Uh, and then we, we give them, we do give them a scorecard, right? Are you voting with the AFL-CIO's proxy voting guidelines or against the guidelines? Uh, and there are many, many um, 
uh, asset managers that vote 100% uh, with the AFLCO proxy voting guidelines. Um, there are is in a second tier, the middle tier, uh, which vote uh, with us more than 50% of the time, uh, and then the bottom tier, which is less than 50% of the time. Uh, and that that really is, I think, um, one of the problems. It's not just whether they're voting with uh, with the AFLCO's proxy voting guidelines, but it reflects the fact that that uh, many large investment managers, uh, particularly the the very largest uh, index providers, uh, BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street. Uh, have routinely, historically, routinely voted with corporate management. Um, you know, it's our concern is that that in part, uh, money managers' uh, reluctance to vote against management reflects conflicts of interest, right? That they're managing uh, corporate 401k plan assets. Uh, they themselves, of course, are, may also be you know publicly listed companies in their own right. Um, and so uh, you, the, the purpose of the key vote survey is to remind asset managers that when voting, they need to be voting in the best interest of their clients, uh, be it uh, pension plans or be it mutual fund investors, and not, not being overly deferential to corporate management. Since we've been doing the survey, we have seen a dramatic improvement, I think, in the independence of asset managers to vote uh, in the interest of their clients and not in the interest of the CEO. Um, you know, votes uh, against boards of directors are more common, votes against say on pay, shareholder support, support for shareholder resolutions on ESG issues has grown tremendously. Uh, so those are all positive features, but it only comes uh, through uh, investors having that dialogue uh, with their asset managers um, to ensure that um, they reflect, you know, their, their best interests. And so, yes, now I'm happy to, I'm glad you mentioned the key vote survey, but like I said, I've been doing it for many years. So um, I'm glad that, uh, that some, someone's noted it and still, still finds it useful. Well, I'm so, glad uh, it's still there. Cause I, I couldn't find it. Although I didn't look very hard. I just thought, Oh, okay. I'm, we're going to be talking to Brandon. Let me just look and see if that's still out there. And I didn't, I just, I missed it. yeah. And one, that was, you know, one of the most outrageous things again, that was, you know, proposed by the Trump administration administration that uh, that pension plans um, uh, you know don't could could uh, avoid their you know their fiduciary obligations to vote in the interest of plan participants and beneficiaries by always voting with corporate management that that was the safe harbor uh, they also proposed you didn't have to vote you only have yeah. to vote you know if you owned five percent of a company stock uh, which of course no no pension plan would ever have such a concentrated stake. Uh, and so, um, you know, the, the, it was basically attack on voting and the institution of voting, uh, something which uh, I guess the previous administration was fairly familiar with as things happen, as, as events transpired on January 6th. So. Voting machines. Yeah. yeah. If I could Thanks. follow up, just out of curiosity, do you see a, uh, a difference in the attraction your proposals get when they are more clearly aligned with your constituents, meaning that the proposal is much more uh, focused on pro-labor worker rights versus, say, other uh, social or social justice-oriented um, uh, proposals that fall more in the line of minimum wage, living wage, uh, uh, you know, uh, child labor, things of that nature. Is there a difference in the votes and? In terms of the asset gatherers, who who's more behind what kind of proposal that you might be behind, at least in that realm? I know you've got proposals across the board in other areas. Well, um, 
you know, I think that if anything, the labor movement should do, do, needs to do a better job in promoting workers' rights to collectively bargain and, and the freedom to negotiate uh, with employers for improved wages. Uh, these are uh, human rights, you know, as defined by the International Labor Organization's core conventions, the right freedom of association and right to collectively bargain. Um, and much great work has been done over the years uh, by, you know, not just union members' pension plans, but also uh, other socially responsible investors and ICCR members to um, uh, promote workers' rights as a core value. Uh, many companies today now have respect for, for the ILO conventions as part of their business code of conduct and as their supplier codes of conduct. Um, so, um, you know, it, it, it's, uh, I think, you know, while I don't believe there's ever been a majority vote on such proposals, uh, raising the issue has been, uh, you know, through the shareholder proposal process has been a successful one. Um, and so, um, uh, you know, I, the, uh, the, um, you know, it's an ongoing conversation. There's a shareholder proposal pending at Amazon this year asking for a report on its ILO compliance. Uh, with international uh, workers' rights obligations. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll see what happens with that proposal. Um, uh, you know, I do think it's something that investors today are much more willing to embrace, um, given the importance of the recognized and growing recognition of the importance of human capital management uh, and workforce issues uh, to the company's success. I'm assuming Amazon... Uh went to the SEC and asked for a no action on it? No, not not that particular proposal, which was uh, filed by a a Canadian fund. Uh, And in fact, um, they may be issuing their own report, uh, whether or not it actually addresses, encompasses all the issues being sought to address, uh, I think remains to be seen. Uh, But, but, um, you know, I I think it's obviously an important issue for Amazon investors, as well as workers at Amazon, uh, is the company going to uh, be transparent um, in its uh, in its labor relations? Uh, is it going to continue to uh, seek to avoid unions by, uh, by hiring uh, expensive union avoidance consultants? Um, is it going to plaster its workplaces with anti-union messaging um, and uh, create a, a culture of fear and intimidation? Uh, or is it going to let its its workforce, you know, uh, make a free and, and independent uh, decision uh, when to form unions uh, and to negotiate for improved wages and benefits? Eric, did he get to your answer? I don't. I'm not sure if he. Well, I, so so I, I do you notice a difference in uh, uh, the number of votes or the percentage of success that you're you're achieving between a uh, 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 pro-unionization type proposal or something along those lines versus um, a, uh, a minimum wage uh, type proposal, which uh, the latter, which could be, might be viewed more broadly as a, uh, you know, along the lines of a beta investing as opposed to something more focused or narrow, even though it's fairly large. Um, is there a difference, you know, and do pension funds, are they more supportive of that type of, of uh, proposal? I would expect them to be, but I, you know, I don't know what, I, I know there are more recent changes likely with what they think their fiduciary responsibilities are versus 
say uh, a large asset gatherer like BlackRock or, or Vanguard or somebody else? Well, I, our plans, of, we vote for, for all sorts of proposals, right, to improve uh, workers' okay. wages because we think it's important to uh, prove it for improving the, the corporates, corporation's long-term performance um, as investors. Uh, and, you know, and if, and if anything, I think that uh, wider shareholder support from the institutional investor community has, has not been high enough as it should be for either type of proposal. Um, like I said, you know, I, I don't think, uh, it, and, and, you know, we, we put forward uh, proposals on a variety of topics, right? Uh, um, you know, f- uh, affecting the workforce uh, to prevent uh, uh, workforce uh, discrimination. Um, we recently were filing shareholder proposals on mandatory arbitration, uh, which had been identified as a way that uh, by the Me Too movement is something that was preventing uh, workers from seeking redress when they faced uh, sexual harassment in the workplace. Um, and, um, you know, but a lot of it's also limited too by the rules the SEC has set, right? That if it strays into the ordinary business of the corporation, that is, uh, um, you know, a topic that showed proposals are not supposed to address. And I think the, the uh, SEC historically has been slow in recognizing emerging uh, significant social policy issues um, that are an exception to that rule. Um, and that are uh, therefore um, meritorious for for a shareholder vote. So um, again, I've you know complete confidence in our our current SEC chair Gary Gensler uh, and his respect and, and recognition for the importance of both the shareholder proposal rule and of, of workers having good information to make good investment decisions. So um, you know I you know I'm envisioning a day where you know we, shareholders won't have to ask for things like you know reports on do you do you pay a living wage to your workforce? Because that will be something that every company is required to provide. So with regard to the freedom of association proposal, which I think it's a great proposal from Share, uh, I'm looking at that thinking, okay, if that, uh, if that goes on the ballot and if it gets a, a high vote, that might be something that I might submit at a bunch of different companies in the future. Is that something that, yeah. Well, and it's it's modeled on uh, previous resolutions that have asked companies to incorporate the ILO core conventions, um, and uh, you know it's it was particularly common in in um, over the years in uh, 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 retail facing companies, right? So garment uh, retailers, for example, um, and there's been an evolution in those proposals, right? The first generation of proposals asked uh, asked um, companies to uh, simply commit to you know, respecting the the core conventions of freedom of association and and, and right to collective bargaining, uh, and um, you know, and then it became a question of uh, of implementation and transparency. Right? Is there does the company uh, um, uh, um, recognize you know external grievance processes for workers to be able to uh, bring forward complaints? Um, um, and that that could either be through a collective bargaining process. Or participation in other international sort of soft law mechanisms like the uh, OECD um, uh, um, complaint process um, for under the OECD guidelines for multinational employ- uh, organizations. Um, uh, there's a, a voluntary um, uh, complaint process that that workers and other agreed parties can use to um, bring forward. Uh, you know, their concerns regarding respect for, for human rights. And so, um, um, but, you know, a company like Amazon's got a long way to go, right? Uh, they haven't yet committed to reporting and that's what this proposal is seeking. 
Can you talk a little bit more about um, retirement assets, uh, substantial amount of money that are that sit in, in various different pools? Um, a 401k, somebody may have, you know, uh, maybe a lot more accessible in terms of switching a fund uh, than, say, a pension fund. Um, and then in between, there could be, uh, you know, em employee stock ownership plans that are managed by trusts, and then there are other pools as well. Which ones do a good job of representing their beneficiaries? And which ones are totally divorced? And you know, where are we in, in potentially reforming some of those? That's an excellent question. Um, and um, uh, you know, retirement security in the United States has long been thought of as a three-legged stool, right? You have social security, you would have defined benefit pension plans that provide a lifetime uh, uh, of income. Uh, and then you have individual retirement savings uh, is held by 401k plans. Uh, of course, over the past several decades, we've seen a shift away from employers' willingness to provide defined benefit pension plans to 401k plans, a transferring of risk from uh, employers to employees. Uh, and um, uh, and it, for you know, many reasons, um, 401k plans are less secure than defined benefit pension plans and also more costly uh, to plan participants. Um, and, uh, and you also there see, I think, a breakdown uh, between the interests of plan participants uh, and, and, uh, and the votes that are cast on their behalf. Um, that, uh, that the mutual fund industry, which primarily services uh, 401k participant directed plans, um, has the I think the the least independence uh, when voting uh, on on proxies and so their their mutual fund companies are routinely in the bottom tier on the AFL CIO key vote survey for example um, and 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 you know whereas uh, for uh, defined benefit pension plans both public employee pension plans as well as uh, union members uh, multi employer pension plans which are overwhelmingly defined benefit plans. Um, you know, the, the, the law has long been clear that the, those plans have to uh, ensure that votes are cast uh, in the best interests of, of the plan participants. And so for that reason, you had seen a focus on, on uh, proxy voting, um, both as a, as a fiduciary obligation, as well as a way to create value, right, by making companies more uh, responsible, more accountable. Um, and, and that directly reflects, I think, you know, both the, both the legal obligations, uh, but also the structures of those plans, right? That uh, public employee pension plans often have worker representation on the boards of trustees. Uh, Multi-employer pension plans for union members uh, have joint labor management boards of trustees. So there's worker voice in the management of those funds. And so for those reasons, those governance reasons of pension plans, I think, have a big impact on um, on, on things like proxy voting, which is exactly why Eugene Scalia as the uh, Secretary of Labor under President Trump tried to shut down pension plan proxy voting. CEOs did not like shareholders having, having their own, own voice uh, in, in shareholder meetings and voting against management. Uh, too many CEOs you know, subscribe to uh, 
the Victorian uh, view of children that they should be seen and not heard. Uh, and that's, that's just the reality, but we're not turning, we can't turn the, the back on, you know, shareholder democracy. We need to move forward and build better systems to ensure that uh, the true owners of the company uh, are having, having, you know, their voice, voice and their interests heard. Uh, and um, that's, you know, that really is, I think the cutting edge of debate um, and particularly regarding the, the growth of asset aggregators, as you put it, right, particularly the large index funds, um, and and what impact that has on on um, you know on our corporate governance system. I'm sure they have to vote. I'm sure they vote better than most of the mutual funds, the ones tied to um, Department of Labor standards. But interestingly, one of the first things I did when I set up my website in 1995 i wrote to the department of labor and i asked them have you ever taken an enforcement action against any fund any fiduciary for not voting in the best interest of you know well no we haven't done that but we've written a run a bunch of reports showing that there are problems you know that that uh that they're not actually even asking uh, you know, the, the administrator or the, yeah, I guess the people running the money, have you voted and how did you vote? You know, so. Uh, well, it's, it's really, it's a, a problem of intermediaries, right? So yeah. uh, um, only the very largest pension plans, you know, vote in house. Um, right. And uh, it's typically delegated uh, to a service provider, to an mm -hmm. asset manager, uh, to make that decision, or it may be assigned to a you know a proxy voting fiduciary who who will right. vote on behalf of the plan, uh, and um, uh, you know for that reason, um, for for me you know for many decades, uh, proxy voting was you know just viewed as a compliance exercise by asset managers that they have to vote you know right. we'll always vote with management, um, uh, um, and. Uh, and it wasn't seen as a source of value creation, which I believe it is, right? right. Particularly for passive investors, right? Right for, for or for well diversified investors, you know, who are universal owners, um, and uh, that's where that's where shareholder advocacy really, really, you know, has the opportunity to shine, both by improving individual company performance as well as uplifting the market as a whole. Uh, and that, I think that was really, you know, some of the genius of the the Gilbert brothers that I mentioned at the offset of this this call. Um, you know, they, they, uh, they, their mother had invested in uh, hundreds of companies uh, after the 1929 stock market crash. They essentially had an index fund that they ran uh, before there was even such a thing of index funds. Uh, they were the, they were diversified, you know, universal owners and public companies. Uh, and they, they recognized that, you know, through their voice as, as shareholder advocates, um, they could improve accountability uh, and hold hold corporate CEOs accountable, and that was um, you know that was uh, um, something that you know we we today are still still emulating um, every time we file a shareholder proposal under 14A8. Right. Right. So um, one of the other things I did last year is I filed a bunch of proposals. Uh, you know the Rooney Rule thing, which I already brought up. Here. Rooney rule for trying to get an employee on the board. And one of my techniques was, I didn't start this way initially, but as I progressed, I thought, well, let's file more of those at companies where the employees 
own a significant number of shares. So uh, like one of the most, I, unfortunately, General Electric, the stock has gone down so much that, you know, I couldn't file there. But the stock, as I recall, General Electric employees, they own, I don't know, 10, 12 percent of the company. I did file at uh, Procter & Gamble. I filed at Clorox. I filed at a, several companies. Now, it occurs to me that <clears throat> some of the companies that uh, have high employee ownership uh, probably have high employee ownership to discourage unions from forming at the companies. Uh, I'm kind of thinking that Procter & Gamble doesn't have a heavily unionized employee base. Anyway, I... The other thought that occurs to me is I couldn't, you know, once I got those proposals filed, I could reach out to the public, for the, you know, the five people that read my website <laughs> and others, Twitter and wherever. <clears throat> but all this is leading up to the question is, does the AFL-CIO through its, and maybe through affiliate organizations like Working America or other organizations, is there a way to somehow mobilize people, workers who own stock at companies to and actually advise them as to how to vote? One of the, the other thing that comes to mind is, was it Carl uh, Herberger? I forget the last name, but, you know, he puts out the Optimizer, which you, I'm sure you're familiar with, Brandon. And he's bringing up, you know, Peggy Florence was famous for this years ago at Prudential where, you know, if you vote, we'll give you a, we'll send you a tote bag, you know, and, uh, and, but, you know, Prudential had moved from a mutual company, mutually owned company to, a, you know, stock traded company. But there was a couple of other uh, companies in the optimizer, I forget what the companies were, but they're trying to get not only retail shareholders to vote because traditionally retail shareholders vote in favor of management they don't you know then i can spend hours pouring through the proxy to figure out how to vote on each issue oftentimes they just vote for management but they're also trying to get their employee stock ownership those folks to vote because they typically support management and you know my question is, is there any way that we can influence those employee owners to, you know, how do we get in? How do we reach them? How do we, you know, get their attention that, well, when you're voting your shares, don't you just vote them in line with management because, you know, your CEO pay, you know, your CEO is getting so much money or this is happening, you know, the auditor is been there forever and they're in the pocket of management or whatever the issues are, uh, how do we get to those employees? Have you guys thought about it? Well, I don't, uh, to your first point, um, I don't see companies um, using or viewing equity compensation as some form of union avoidance. Um, uh, to the contrary, I see it as it has been used as a management entrenchment tool, right? That uh, yeah. to prevent a takeover of the company, um, having uh, having the shares held in friendly hands, um, you know, helps helps further that goal. Um, now, um, uh, I th think that um, that uh, 
um, you know, the, the, the idea of employee ownership, you know, is, um, you know, is a good thing, but also has to be kept in perspective of, you know, meeting workers, uh, basic income and retirement and health security needs first. Um, and so, um, uh, um, you, you know, and, and then, and then, you know, the idea of, uh, workers voting, um, you know, in their own employer, I mean, you, we have to realize that, you know, for most people, um, they don't want to be making proxy voting decisions any more than they want to be making, uh, you know, the decisions, whether to invest the retirement savings and, in, in uh, uh, a particular company stock. That's, that's why pop, uh, mutual funds are so popular. Um, and, um, you know, just in the same way that most people don't want to, you know, uh, uh, change the oil on their own cars. They prefer to have a, a professional do it who knows more about car maintenance. There are certainly lots of people right. who change their own car's oil. Uh, and there are lots of people out there who vote their own proxies. Uh, but, you um, but uh, but but many but many do not and uh, um, and and frankly, if you look at the governance of you know employee stock ownership plans, um, you know they they often uh, will be voted by a trustee, right? Not necessarily voted by the the plan participants directly, or there may be mere voting uh, in which it reflects the voting of. Uh, of how the rest of the plan participants vote. But that's also dominated by the fact that, you know, management employees and the CEOs probably got the biggest holding of them all, right? right. Um, so, um, you know, so, uh, um, I, I mean, I think you're raising raising interesting questions around employee ownership um, and, uh, um, you know, and, and employees of course are not, they're, 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 they're double stakeholders, right? They're, they're right. investors um, through their retirement savings. Uh, but they're also employees and have a long-term interest in the, in the company. Um, so, uh, and I think that voice needs needs greater amplification if we're going to have a successful and competitive um, U.S. publicly traded companies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I talked to companies last year with the Rooney Rule type thing, you know, to try to get a voice on the board, uh, you know, the response was, "Well, we have." Uh, you know, we have town hall meetings, we have suggestion boxes, we have all these things. But I, you know, when when the workers took over Rath Pack, uh, I was in, uh, I was working on a, a doctorate at that point, and I was I had a grant from the National Institute for Mental Health to study what form of ownership and management is best for society, best for workers, and best for the company, and. When I went out to Rath Pack, I mean, here was a five-story plant, meatpacking plant. It was ancient, and uh, the and since they laid off by seniority, the average age of the Rath Pack employee when I got there after it became worker-owned was probably 55, 56, something like that. So, those workers were there. You know, way back in the day when they were organizing the plan, there was Pinkerton guards around and all kinds of crazy people. But uh, I say we, I wasn't all that much involved, but I was a little bit involved. But, you know, they raised the productivity of that plant just enormously after it became worker owned because workers really took an interest in, you know, how can we make this plant more productive? How can we compete? You know, 
of course, in the end there, it turned out that, you know, you've got international beef pack not too far away and, you know, they're basically hiring illegal employees and they're paying them, you know, $1.50 an hour and these folks were getting $30 an hour or $40 an hour. So it's, it's even if you're super productivity, you know, it's hard to compete with that. But. Well, it really goes to, you know, workers need to have a, a structure in place that uh, they have voice right. uh, and they have to have trust. They have to have trust that, uh, you know, staying after hours to help troubleshoot a problem would, will be rewarded. Right. And that, you know, you want if you're an employer of choice, if you're an employer that pays high wages and has offers stable employment, uh, workers will look to you. Uh, and choose you over competing competing employers, and that's what allows firm specific human capital to develop the this, yeah. the the knowledge and 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 commitment to your employer because you have a feeling that we're all in it together, uh, and uh, you know and there and there are a variety of ways that that can be achieved, and I believe collective bargaining is is a central way to it, allowing workers the freedom to negotiate. Um, to uh, both improve their their working conditions as well as to give them a voice uh, to to improve the productivity of their work because they see um, the the company as a whole gaining um, from 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 that uh, from from that extra effort uh, and you know organizations that are that succeed will figure out how to do that um, and you know I believe that uh, that that um, unions are the best way to do that. Um, because it it gives gives workers that confidence uh, that they can they can uh, they can speak out uh, and um, not suffer retaliation from their immediate supervisor if they raise um, you know a, a better way to operate the business and and in fact they'll they'll be rewarded for that um, so um, so it's you know it's it, we've got a long way to go in this country. Um, you know, given private sector unionization is so low and you have companies like Amazon so resistant to the idea that workers should have their own voice uh, in, in how the company operates. Um, and, you know, the, of, of all the, the issues that we face in terms of you know, the need for companies to be more diverse, to uh, uh, provide equal pay, to, um, uh, to um, you know, to including workers in the decision-making uh, that affects the company's performance. Um, I believe uh, unions and, and, and worker representation on boards and other ideas like ESOPs are, uh, are you know, important to, to getting us there. Well, I, I can't think of a better way to wrap up this conversation with just what you said, uh, Brandon. And I think you know, unions we have to keep them top of mind and the rights of employees to uh, collectively bargain. That's got to be right there at the top. So I really want to thank you for joining us and uh, hope to see you again in the future in real life and also through Zoom. So thanks again. All right. Well, thank you, Jim, for all your work and uh, look forward to seeing you uh, at the shareholder meetings later this proxy season. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm.